This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.35 in the morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wang Xiaoning and Chong Jen Sun. This is WTF, or it's and it's short for What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed is to make sure that you enter the weekend without feeling any FOMO about any news stories that maybe you didn't really pay attention to. We're going to fill you in. Or you might be frustrated or sad depending on your <laughs> view of what we just reported. But let's get started. You know, let's start with international stories. Um, I think one of the big stories to come out this week is really what's happening over in the banking sector, yeah, right? Because for the longest time, they've just been kind of cruising along, doing really well. But uh, when things don't look well with the banking sector, that's when the rest of the economy really starts to get worried. Yeah, we've seen job cuts for technology. So now it's spilling over to the banks. Morgan Stanley has said they're cutting about 2% of their workforce, which is roughly about 1,600 people, which will leave them with a workforce of about 20,000. Barclays City and Goldman, among other banks, have begun to cut as well. But I think in this industry, I mean, the average investment banker or banker, the pay is... The median wage is above other industries. Are you talking about yourself, Jensen, once upon a time? I'm talking about the (laughs) developed markets, not not Malaysia. Not the emerging markets, (laughs) right? Yes. So we have global output but local pay. That's the bankers for here. So I guess there's always the need to make hay while the sun shines, as job security is really non-existent. And I think most of these bankers, they really look forward to bonus payday, and which is very much a, a very anticipated event. Everyone compares their bonus within oh, yes. the industry. And I just saw news that came out today that Goldman Sachs, for their senior employees, they're actually expected to shrink their bonus by as much as half. Ouch. It feels like not too long ago we were talking about like record bonus levels for partners and investment bankers because they were trying to retain staff, you know, and, and now it's the opposite situation. Yeah, so great resignation. What was that? I mean, that was the conversation we had at the beginning of the year. Did that die so fast? Uh, well, if you ask me, bankers are a smart bunch, whatever you say about them, right? They can spot trends and they know what's happening just looking at what's the balance sheets of their clients. And I think they can see margin compression coming ahead. They can see a recession. So all this is preemptive because you may not be able to control your top line, but you certainly on some level can control your costs. And when you're talking about investment bankers, what's the largest component? of cost. It's actually human resource. So let's start trimming, trimming, trimming the fat away and just keep to the core stuff that you really need because you know you're going to do far fewer deals this next year. So I think this is to be anticipated. But of course, don't feel so sorry for investment bankers because my mantra for them and also for myself in the past is you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? Um, you get paid really well and before you know it, if things don't work out, you also get shown the door very quickly. That's just life of investment banker. And what does this all mean for actually unemployment? Because unemployment in the US now is about 3.7%. And I just looked at a survey done by Financial Times and they polled a lot of leading academic economists and of the 45 economists surveyed between very recently, between December 2nd and December 5th, 85% are projecting a recession by next year and more than half are expecting 
unemployment to actually be between 5.5% and 6.5% next year. And I think that would largely translate into at least 2 to 3 million job losses. Ouch. I think that is the, that's when the other shoe drops, right? Because we've been mm. seeing inflation go up, but uh, employment also remains robust. And that's what's keeping kind of the Fed on its rate hike at the moment. Uh, how is that going to play out? We'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, but turning our attention to another news story, and I'm going to need you guys to fill me in. It's coming out of Europe. I've been following the fallout from Meghan and Harry's Netflix series, so I haven't really <laughs> been paying attention to much else. But there has been a whole lot going on in Germany. Sorry, have you started? Has the series started? Have yes, you, the first three. Three episodes dropped And you've watched yesterday. them already. Well, no, I've just been following a lot of headlines and social media reactions to it. It's been quite fun. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Germany. <laughs> I thought that's the real news, but never mind. <laughs> Germany first. Yeah, so in Germany, 25 people have been arrested across Germany on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. Honestly, I just read this article this morning and I just found it bizarre and really like intriguing. Like a Netflix series, exactly. right? Exactly. So apparently a man named... Henrik VIII, is that correct? From an Heinrich. Old, Heinrich. Heinrich VIII from an old aristocratic family is allegedly to have been central to their plans and according to federal prosecutors, is one of two alleged ringleaders among those arrested across 11 German states and the plotters are said to include members of this extremist group called Reichsburger. Um, so these citizens, they actually reject Germans' modern democracy and refused to pay taxes. And once they were seen as harmless, but apparently they've been very active now. The number's up to 21,000 people. Um, I think every country, especially a democratic one, will have these groups, far-right thinking people. But I guess unless the movement escalates and they manage to convince, convince many other citizens to follow suit, it may amount to nothing. But I guess in this case, from what I read, it does sound a bit worrying. Uh, because I think the police in Germany, there were about um, 3,000 officers that actually took part in 150 operations in Germany, 16 states, with two people arrested in Austria and Italy. And apparently this Reichsburger group, they want to establish plans to rule Germany with departments covering health, justice and foreign affairs. Yeah, they were going to storm the Bundesberg. I think in their group, they also had one member of parliament as part of it. But I think for Germany, what's alarming to them is because of their historical past, right? So something like this really is like, how did it happen? Was it really under the radar? Did the state know about it? It seemed to have spread quite significantly because if you just look at these Reichenberg, and I'm sorry if we've butchered this German name, let's call them the citizens of the right, uh, they, they were once seen as harmless cranks, okay? Uh, and they used to number maybe 21,000, so not that small either. But apparently they are as much as 10% or, you know, and are thought to be violent, anti-Semitic, and there are a lot of conspiracy theories that are out there. So this rise of right-wing movements that were previously fringe, um, but they're growing a lot of traction. We're seeing that across a lot of the developed economies, actually. Um, I mean, this is one that's happening in Germany, but don't forget that we also have the QAnon phenomenon that started out in the US and it's also spreading across well, Europe. Well, they did storm the house, right, on January the 6th. And elements of them, yeah, were, were, led, led, to, were led to what happened on the US Capitol. Um, so... 
this right wing wave um it's it's uh, really starting to become more apparent so i'd be very curious to see how this plays out i guess across the world and i wonder how much is social media responsible for this that's right that's right yeah. in a way it is down i mean i think uh, social media and just the way it's brought people to be more connected but also allowed bubbles to form mm. and just flourish echo chambers yeah yeah you go into um, this rabbit hole and you never leave right uh, it uh, it's one of those things that we're grappling with it's one of those uh, modern day problems that we really don't have quite the solution to so that's why this story was uh, important or it's important to highlight and keep in mind i guess and in, in, in how we discuss social media and, and ways that we can mitigate the fallout from it um but maybe very quickly before we head into a break let's talk about uh, what we're seeing coming out of china yeah, so for China, the economy is opening. There have been a slew of actually uh, loosening by the Chinese government. Uh, the people no longer have to show negative virus tests um, or health codes in order to travel between different parts of the country. And I think more importantly, um, people that have shown mild symptoms, they're allowed to quarantine at home. And I think part of the discontent um, actually arose from what I've read and heard is that some, some of these Chinese citizens, they were very unhappy because when they watched the World Cup and had a role to play in this um, eventual easing, the sight of unmasked fans in Qatar, uh-huh. I think it really irked them that these people were soaking in, in the atmosphere and they really riled up these Chinese people. I think I did see media reports about how coverage of the World Cup was different in China versus others. So whereas in other uh, countries, you'd see the fans in the stands, you know, waving, acting wild. Whereas in China, they would always pan the cameras to the the players or the officials, you know. I I thought it was quite curious. Hmm. Yeah, but what is the consequence of this gradual reopening? So on Bloomberg, I'm seeing this headline and, and, you know, it says that China faces a daunting task after in some way giving up this COVID zero policy. Uh, will they see a surge in infections, right? As, yep. And that's a possibility of up to more than 2 million people. I think we're already seeing COVID cases going up incredibly. Added to that is, of course, the economy is not really in a very strong position. It's been closed for, what, close to three years. We know they're having a property crisis and uh, even savings rates of individuals are down. So even if you reopen and you will have a bit of cabin fever, how much money do people really have to spend? And it's also the mood, right, the sentiment. How good do they feel after all that has happened? Yeah, there's just a lot of factors coming into play about China's reopening. It's not going to fully be that feel-good, happy, happy story. It's uh, really much more complicated than that. It is 9.45 in the morning. We're heading into some messages, but we'll come back for the second half of WTF with a look at political recaps of the week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana with Shaoning and Jen Sun. We're turning our attention to round up some of the top stories from our local front. What do we have? Yeah, so on the local front, we have news on MACC actually seeking information on the 600 billion funds of, that has been used allegedly by the previous administration under Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin. And if necessary, the MACC may also send officers to collect information as well. And MACC reiterated that its chief commissioner, Tan Sri Azambaki, that the Graf body had opened an investigation into the matter. I think while all this is necessary, and we have also seen investigations into other parts of the um, contracts as well. We've seen the 7 billion flood contract actually. 2 billion. Is it 7 or 2? Seven, 7 out of 15. So I think the portion that's being investigated is that 7 billion. Oh my. So we have also the DNB, DNB 
And then we have seen the number of draws of NFOs being cut to eight. And I'm, I'm wondering what's next. So from what I can probably gather is that um, based on the Brusa stats that I've seen, foreigners have been selling almost every day post the elections. So while we had that one-day rally where the index was up 4%, um, the, the impact on the FBM chaos has not been that apparent because I guess foreign shareholding is really low already. But I guess while looking at all these contracts are really good and ne- it's really necessary, but I think what investors or foreigners or FDIs, what they want to see is a growth agenda for Malaysia, reforms and the economy moving. So I, I do applaud the new government for looking to all this, but hopefully they don't re- repeat the mistakes that they made in 2018 when a lot of foreigners actually shied away. Yeah, because there was confusing policies, right? And there was a lot of U-turns. Uh, especially one of them was whether we should implement capital gains tax on stocks. I think that was one big red yeah. flag for yeah. foreign investors. But I think, to be fair, it's like, what, one week of this new cabinet? It was, uh, you know, it was announced on a Friday evening at 8.15. They've literally just been in office for a week. I don't really see any substantial economic policies as of date, right? So there are going to be three key ministries that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Finance Ministry, Economics Ministry, and of course, MITI. Now, we've also have the unusual step where Anwar Ibrahim is is double-hatting. He's our Prime Minister and he's also our Finance Minister. We have Tuko Zafro as MITI. And then we also have uh, Rafizi Ramli as Economic Ministry. Now, I want to know these three ministries, how they're really going to work together, right? Because we have some real major structural issues. And if you ask me, maybe foreign investors, we... They haven't got a clue what our plans are. And we need a combination of short-term, medium-term and long-term plans to kind of resolve the issue of this middle-income trap that we are seeing, the pre-industrialization that we keep talking about. And so far, not yet. So maybe give them some time, but I would actually be curious uh, to to hear and then also critique all the upcoming policies. That's critical for us. Policy coherence. That's really what I'm going to be looking for. Are all the ministries, are all the policies going in tandem to achieve a common goal or are we getting mixed messages from one minister or the other, uh, leaving investors confused as to what Mm. actually the aims of the government are? I think that's what I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Yeah, and uh, you know, are we going to reverse some of our trade uh, agreements that we have signed. Yeah, that's something that we discussed earlier this week. Um, this is regarding, of course, the CPTPP. We've been seeing uh, some civil society groups urging for the government to review this decision. Uh, it's a very divisive one. Um, so I think that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, but let's also talk about another uh, big political event this week, and that was the by-elections in Padang Serai and Pulau Tioman. And in a way, this is with, this is the first referendum on this BHPN GPS government, right? Because we did see how on these two seats uh, BH, uh, BH, <laughs> PH and BN. You've come up with a new coalition. Pretty name. much, yeah. Barisan Harapan. What is that? Uh, but yeah, so they did co- cooperate in that election. Um, in these elections, um, they managed to uh, win Pulau Tioman by a very small margin. Yes. Uh, but they did lose Padang Serai, and Padang Serai has been a PKR stronghold for the past three terms. So what does this say, really? What kind of um, inferences can we draw? There are a lot. It depends on who you speak to, whether uh, you know it's something significant or not. But yeah, I think this does pose questions for how the alliance will move forward. I think they really do need to um, sort things out, I suppose. And the other thing is, does it then embolden or put, you know, uh, for those states which are run by PN, are they then going to push for state elections as, as soon as possible? Because bear in mind, there were only three state elections that happened in conjunction with the general elections, right? Uh, Perlis, 
Pahang and Perak. Did I get it right? You yes. got that right. So there's six more left on the table. Uh, will they be called soon? Will they be later? Uh, you get mixed messages because today in the New Straits Times, I saw page two saying that PN says not too not too early. Uh, but then I see a Malaysian insight saying that uh, it might happen. Uh, so what what's the what's the situation? Is it in their favour to push for state elections? ASAP for PN? I guess I just remind all parties that be that, you know, monsoon season is still here and there was such a huge outcry against holding elections during the monsoon season. I think at the very least, let's keep to that pledge, you know, regardless of moving forward. Well, the EC said, can you please hold them all together at the same time? That's the request. And it will cost Maybe something like... Maybe for efficiency for them. Yeah, and it will cost something like 450 million ringgit to hold these elections. But I think it would be really interesting to find out whether the pact that we already saw that has been built post-GE15, will they continue in the state elections in all six states or will they be different packs for each state? I mean, yeah, think about it. When you think about Selangor and um, Penang, where PH has a very uh, you know, firm stronghold, why would they want to share, I suppose, if they mm. feel that they can still hang on? Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of questions that need to be um, figured out. They did say that uh, this current government did say that they were planning to sign some kind of agreement yes. before December 19th. Rafizi Ramli came out to say that, right? Uh, I think it's supposed to be soon. So, no details yet. Yeah, what's the content of the agreement? What exactly have they agreed to? I, I guess all these things are uh, issues to look out for, something to uh, watch in the weeks to come. Yeah, and then I think we've got uh, another news which is actually somewhat related to civil liberties. Okay, So we do know that Pakatan Harapan in their manifesto has been a little bit more open with regards to freedom of speech, uh, the freedom of the media. But yeah, we see this news headline uh, coming out yesterday. Uh, This is from The Vibes where uh, USM students were summoned over Fami Reza's democratic talks. Remember, he's been going around, I mean, pre-elections, right? And kudos to him for explaining democracy where parties lie 101. And there were a lot of public universities that actually, uh, students organised it, but in the end, they weren't allowed to be held at the public universities, although private universities did go ahead with this. So the question is, why were students being called for this now? I have to I have to wonder about it as well. Were the police acting on reports? Had these students student participations been reported and hence they were acting on that? Or was it something independent of that? A lot of questions. And uh, again, I, I agree. There really shouldn't be any penalties or any, um, uh, I, I don't know, any anything taken from students just wanting to learn more about uh, democratic systems. Yeah. Isn't that the whole purpose of a university, right? An exchange of ideas. Aside from your academic syllabus and curriculum, for sure. Uh, But it's more than that. University has to be a place of freedom of thought in some way, right? Uh, That's where you grow up. You've developed your own thoughts and there's maturity of conversation. But related to this is a Malaysia Kini uh, headline coming out where media freedom is a commitment of the new government. Uh, Communications and Digital Minister Fami Fazil said that he's setting up of a Malaysian media council could be a way of achieving that goal. And that's great news for the media industry, for people like us. And uh, do check out uh, the Pressing Matters discussion that I had earlier this week um, with, uh, with, uh, with with some experts from the media industry whose names slipped my mind. But yeah, I CIJ, yes, I spoke to Washla Naidu of the Centre for Independent Journalism and also Benjamin Lowe of Taylor's University. And both of them really did emphasise the importance of having a media council to allow the industry to self-regulate and to become more independent and actually set ethical standards 
standards that everyone abides to. Yeah. Um, that would be, uh, you know, transformational for our media industry. And uh, let's end on an op-ed, right? Because I always recommend an op-ed for the end of the week for you to read. And this is an op-ed, actually, uh, regarding the Penang Transportation Master Plan. Now, this was supposed to be a $46 billion project. Now, this is op-ed written by by a Penang Forum Committee member. But... It's also been endorsed, and this is a really, really long list. So Agora, Aleran, Arts ED, Consumer Association of Penang, Jaringan Ecology, Malaysian Nature Society, Penang Forum, Penang Heritage Trust, Penang Hills, Penang Public Transport Users, Sahabat Alam Malaysia, Tanjung Bunga Residents Association as to why they need to rethink this project. Okay. Take- and we are in this era... Big projects don't always equate good for our economy or for our citizens either. Indeed, indeed. It is 9.57 in the morning. That is all that we have on the morning run on WTF. Uh, Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.